Uh, Rachel, Sam, I'm Noah. This is episode 65 of the GQ Style Customer Service Fashion Podcast. Today we're going to break down the uh, Robert Mueller testimony. We're live from the content tower. Just kidding. Where, uh... Um, yeah, we're going to do our analysis of the, um, Democrat candidates for, for president. president. Yeah. And then we'll talk about Boris Johnson's hair, which is the same as my hair. It is when, the, the way Boris hair. Johnson looks is, you know how people do that thing, like the side by side where they're like how I think I look and how I really look mm-hmm. for me, it's both pictures of Boris Johnson. <laughs> like, I think I look like him and I actually look like him. All right. So anyway, what's on the what's on the docket? What's on the docket today is uh, a story that you've been working on as long as Robert Mueller worked on his report. It's true. Which is the real story of Supreme. It was a it was a long time coming. Twenty five years in the making. <laughs> it was twenty five years in the making. Supreme is twenty five years old, which is sort of sort of the occasion for it. Yeah, but I think it was also something that you and Will had really wanted to do. Yeah, Will started, Will, our editor, Will Welch, started talking a while ago about, like, doing the big Supreme story, uh, that, you know, the big GQ or GQ-style Supreme story. I think in the beginning we weren't sure what it would be or where it would go. And I don't know that I was initially on board just because I think anyone who, like, follows fashion and style and stuff like you definitely experience some supreme fatigue just in terms of the amount of like coverage it seems to get or discussion there seems to be about it but i would say just after i gave it some thought beyond that most of that coverage is pretty superficial and revolves around like look at this crazy accessory supreme made this season or look at these fuck boys in line to buy supreme shirts or it's um, ruining young men's lives (laughs) right i've heard that a lot People love to blog about, you know, Supreme's place in the culture and its effects, yeah. either positive or negative. But nobody's really Printed fully taken out. stock of of Supreme. Yeah, put it in ten. How many pages is this? Eighteen pages of one hundred pages. Uh, Sixty-four pages. Um, this is, by the way, a fully... story. A story that's in the September issue of GQ. Yeah. August. August issue of GQ. Oh, August issue of uh, GQ. Odell Beckham. Uh, sorry, but it's so came. good, we might put it in September as well. And it's um, uh, on GQ.com. Mm-hmm. But nobody's really taken stock of Supreme's fashion legacy. Well, and I think in part. Uh, well, there there were sort of two things that were interesting about that, like when we were first talking about the story, which was like months and months ago. Like this seemed to be like kind of a white whale for Will that he like wanted to do the big, like definitive Supreme story. Yeah, and it's, it's um uh, like I was saying, a lot of what's out there is really superficial because you really don't get access to Supreme and they reveal very little. It's mostly an anonymous brand and it's a brand that doesn't do uh, P. PR or or um, any typical sort of like press so you just get very little and there's very little out there and obviously that's in, intriguing and gave us like a real uh, impetus mission yeah. yeah but the other thing too is that it, I think part of the reason why there hasn't been this story is that there are very there are very few people who could write this now <laughs> <laughs> and in order to like because this is something obviously like as you get into in the story that has existed for over two decades and i think a lot of people became aware of it much more recently than that yeah 
but you were born in the Lafayette Street store. That's were you right. Not? Yeah. So, That's so right. you had a kind of insider access. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you though, like Harold did- Hunter was um, <laughs> the OBGYN. He was the OBGYN. <laughs> um, I want to ask you though, like, how did you even start? Like, who did you go to first? How did you start to conceive of like how you were going to explain this thing that so many people feel, as you said, like fatigued knowing about? Well, I it. Just in in thinking about how we would do this, I just, what was very apparent to me is that the story that isn't told about Supreme is that it's, it has like this important place in, in fashion history. It's not like, um, and that's, that's just a thing people didn't talk about. And I thought that you have this like legacy of, uh, like sort of streetwear, which I, which I would say is clothing you wear in the street and, uh, that includes Ralph Lauren and Helmut Lang and that uh, Supreme has a place in that legacy, that there's like a real case to be made um, that that Supreme is deserving. And obviously James, um, or Supreme won the CFDA award for menswear last year and James Jebby accepted that. So maybe that's what got me thinking a little bit, but I just, as someone who's who wears Supreme and has been shopping at Supreme for a long time, probably over 10 years, um, I, I was just always like, I don't, they make really good, really high quality clothing that lasts a long time. That is, has this cool, timeless quality. You can wear stuff from the whole history of the brand and it looks good and cool today. It's like not stylistically like stuck in any one genre. It's, it's like any cool fashion brand. It sort of is broad and has range and, uh, is, is like well developed. And, um, so Anyway, I, my thinking was just like, this is like one of the greatest fashion brands of all time, I think, and no one ever talks about that. So what would it look like to like, report out that story or to, to make that argument? Well, anything- and then the, so the first thing, to answer your question, the, the starting point was just to go to Supreme and say, hey, we want to do this story. Um, and I think they felt like, yeah, this is this is a crucial part of our brand that people don't talk about or don't understand. So let's like, let's go. It is so crucial because I feel like most of the discourse around Supreme just like reduces it, the whole brand down to the logo Yeah, and you know, everyone, everyone and, and the culture around it in some ways that, you know, it's the resale business is so lucrative. Um, and so people are kind of trading in Supreme as like a commodity rather than yeah. like clothes that you can actually wear. And so this thing, so this idea that, Supreme is is consistently year in year out, season in season out, making extremely high quality, well designed, thoughtful product is kind of lost, and is like influential. You know, like obviously Supreme and the story gets into this as well because you can't the story. You know, I I wasn't concerned about the resale market and the hype and the lineups and the like. You know, box logo phenomenon like you, that's you did kind not of report live there. from no the, i didn't i didn't spend a single second in line or talking to kids in line because once part of the influence that the story gets into is like the the business model like the drops and the mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. supreme is seasonal there are two seasons two collections but the way they distribute it and and all this is 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 a, a crucial part of it but i also think like the clothes are influential like if you look at um the knitwear they make and like the the prints and um obviously collaborations with like undercover and comme de garçon and stuff are um like kind of like hit that high fashion note but like 
I don't know. Supreme was the first brand I saw doing a lot of like animal print stuff yeah. that seemed like mm-hmm. really cool. And obviously that's like taken off and is like a huge thing now. So I, I just think that there's, it. it's not a trend based thing, but there are definitely like sort of, I think big trends in menswear that you see sort of started with Supreme silk shirts, camp shirts, for instance, like printed camp shirts, mm-hmm. which I'm, you know, Prada maybe like really truly owns like the pinnacle moment in, in the camp shirt. But I, I think that like Supreme was probably there before that. Well, and he says something. Uh, James says something. Joms. I almost said Joms. <laughs> <laughs> James says something really interesting to you, which is like he when he started the the brand, he was like, "Why shouldn't we make really nice stuff?" Yeah. I thought that was kind of inspiring. Yeah, and uh, I, I like I don't know how how aware people are but what supreme makes historically like from the beginning for what you pay what you get is really really good um when i first started like shopping in new york i would go to there were a bunch of places i would go to and i have a whole there's a whole other sort of story about like gnome de guerre and what shopping in new york used to be like uh but i would go to apc and i would go to supreme like every weekend like 10 years ago or I don't know longer and those two brands seemed very similar to me like they were making a really high quality product that was like really desirable presented in an environment that seemed really cool AP, the original APC store with like the wide plank wood yeah. floors and stuff mm-hmm. was incredible so good all the kids that worked there was cool that raw denim thing seemed really cool and of course APC would end up um, collaborating with Supreme and um, there was more specific like overlap as they were neighbors downtown, but you know, like $120 Supreme hoodie made in Canada, super high quality fleece. Like that's not like an accident. And that price reflects like the quality of what you're getting. And it's more than other skate brands, but it's also like a far superior product. That price also doesn't reflect any like hype necessarily. I, mean, I don't really know the economics of that price. So I don't know, but it, it, there's not like some mar- huge markup there just because it has a Supreme logo on it, which I think some people think there is. What I learned, like talking to the guy who runs CYC, this guy Craig Atkinson, who produced a lot of Supreme stuff for a lot of years, like James was obsessively developing like these products. And um, so I think a lot of that, a lot of that stuff that I was always super into, the chinos and cargo pants, Oxford shirts and flannels, sweatshirts like all the cut and sew stuff the pocket tees like all that stuff was as good as anything out there and like the value seemed great and i think and a point that you make in the piece that i think is is not often uh brought up is is that james was very inspired by japan and japanese streetwear yeah i mean supreme's opened on lafayette in 1994 and then in harajuku in 1996 so only two years later he was going to japan like it happened probably all the time yeah um, and as you point out in the piece, he's, you know, he's like learning from, uh, his basically like next door retail neighbors, yeah. which at that, at the time was like neighborhood and, and bape. Yeah. Basically. Which were making a really high quality. And, product. and this devotion, right. This devotion to just, to seeking out the best suppliers, making the best possible, yeah. uh, thing for the price. I mean, that's like a super Japanese idea that, uh, all these brands that would like sort of come up in Supreme's wake would be a lot later to sort of figuring out. Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, yeah, that was a crucial part of the story. And it was interesting in reporting this to kind of really like learn about that timeline and how direct it was, you know, I mean, 
they had an opportunity to open in Japan and they did, but in, and in order to like compete there in a real way, they had to make something that was as good as what their neighbors were selling in Harajuku, which was a bathing ape and a neighborhood. And I think as well as like what they had in stores like beams, which is, mm -hmm. I believe how James ended up, um, linking with CYC in the first place, uh, looking at labels of pieces there. And then it would be like, you know, made in Canada and, and, he ended up linking with them that way. But um, another thing, one of my favorite parts of this story, and I sort of knew this a little bit before from talking to James for other stories, is that he's obsessed with Helmut Lang. And uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think Helmut Lang doesn't design anymore, and he hasn't for a while, but James personally really admired him, and he wore a lot of Helmut Lang, and he used that as sort of like the benchmark for what he was making. And, of course, at the time mid late 90s helmet lang was like in his prime i mean like the greatest to me those are the greatest fashion collections ever made those mm -hmm. helmet lang collections and helmet was in new york um probably like in an office nearby where james was working you know i don't know i don't know if they had any real personal relationship i'm not it's not a, i don't believe they did but i know that that was equally influential to him and he worked at james started working at parachute which is this funny um, fashion brand that was hugely popular at the time and like they were in Soho across the street from the original Comme des Garçons Boutique you know James would later go on to collaborate extensively with Comme des Garçons for Supreme so there's like all these all these dots start connecting in in interesting ways and it's not just the 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 story the history we've heard before which is like yeah James worked at Union or and then uh, met Sean Stussy and then opened the Stussy store and then he opened Supreme and now um, the box logo is everywhere. Like, that's that's not really like an accurate um, version of the story. You've interviewed Joms a lot of times. Joms Jabia. That's how a you actually times, pronounce his yeah. name. Joms Jabia. Yeah, I mean, I've done stories over the years that have like overlapped i talked to him when i wrote a story about o32c because that was the only magazine supreme advertised in um not ever but but for a while and uh he and Jorg had a, a friendship and that made sense and then i spoke to him again about um for a big story i did with adam kimmel another designer i love that supreme collaborated with early on and um i think that's when i sort of realized the helmet line connection um that's just sort of, I don't know, like coincident. I don't, I don't know what, what that's all about. <laughs> I don't have any, I don't have like some James Jebbia bat phone. Do you it think is he not, likes you? I, I think that I've maybe one thing that helped us land this story and get the kind of um, access we got and, and, and get what we got from James was that there's some history of, of uh, there's some history there. Maybe there's some tr some small amount of trust, but I I would not presume anything like that. It was not easy to, for us to pull this off. It took a long time, and it was uh, fraught at times and complicated. And like you know, that's just like journalism. Um, do you remember the first thing you bought at Supreme? Um, probably was oh yeah, Supreme Vans. Supreme's been collaborating with Vans forever, sneakers, and uh, I don't know if they, I guess they still do it. They do a collaboration every season, and they have for, like, forever, and I think I, uh, f very initially I would go there and buy each season and buy, like, a pair or two of the Vans. When was that? Uh, 2005. What was the first thing you bought, Sam? First thing I bought was a uh, 
green moleskin camp hat Whoa. And, uh, from the LA shop actually I was in LA. I went to LA for the first year. time in a while. No, this was 2012. Uh, the last thing I bought was a Supreme leather blazer. And those camp season. caps, like, and this is a thing that I don't know. Like, uh, I talked to this one guy, a friend of mine, Andrew Reith, who's just this dad in Texas who's been wearing Supreme since forever. And, like, those camp caps, like, there are dudes who bought camp caps 15 years ago that still wear them. Like, they never fall apart. Like, James sort of gave me this funny anecdote about Futura, the artist who did, did a mural for the Bowery store, which is where Supreme is sort of squatting while the original store is being renovated temporarily. And uh, James was like, Futura was in there painting this mural and he's wearing these cargo pants. And he's like, yeah, these are from 1996. They were like the first cut, the first like cut and sew piece Supreme made that wasn't like a hoodie or something. Um, and there's, you know, future is still wearing them today. So I don't think people think about like how much, how long clothes will last or hold up much anymore these days. Cause they buy so much fucking clothing. And James also said that in the interview, he was like, people buy, people own way more clothing now than they ever did before. And they buy way more clothing now than they ever did before. And that's certainly true for me. But you know, one of, one of like the, the main values that are the, like, of that that's always been important to Supreme is like about this stuff holding up, which I think ties into skateboarding and the idea that this is like the people who were before there was Supreme people were wearing Carhartt and champion and polo and, um, you know, skaters in New York weren't wearing skate brands cause skate brands were mostly based in California. It was a different vibe. That stuff wasn't great quality. Um, people in New York dress better than people in California. <laughs> fact you guys are just gonna let that one hang out there okay i was trying that's to uh, yeah i guess that's true supreme's business model doesn't really uh lend itself to like buying less but buying better just because everything's you know it it, it definitely like yeah it definitely creates it, it yeah. created like the hype that now exists around it you know, it might have been slightly unintentional, but by dropping product every Thursday and then, yeah, uh, you know, in a quantity that sort of ensures that it's going to sell out. Yeah. You know, it makes it really like activates that snap response and you like, oh, shit, I got to buy this. Yeah, it, it's you're right. It's foolish to, to say that, like, that's what Supreme's message is about <laughs> buying less and buying better. Like, which is not to say that they should be doing it any different. But you when know. you really dig into uh how that drop model developed according to to james and uh the way i understand it it's like he couldn't keep stuff on the shelves he was from from the very beginning the box logo tees and hoodies would sell out immediately yeah he has this great quote about uh like people would come from other cities and like come into the shop and be like there's nothing in here why are people talking about this (laughs) store it sucks yeah uh, I think they had this problem that the shelves were always empty. So, um, and he did It was less like a drop than just a restock, basically. Yeah, and he didn't want he didn't want to restock. He didn't want this to be. He says like it wasn't a store about like basics where you could go in all the time and always find the same thing. That's there are some things that are pretty consistently in there, but they are always they're constantly sort of updating and changing them. So. He didn't want to, you know, if something sells out, he wasn't like, I'm going to make more of that thing. He would make something different. And then I think a rolling production schedule was just a way to uh, keep the shelves stocked. Now, of course, that's evolved to something where 
to something sort of different, like to Sam's point, where um, you they now through this model have this like insane uh, control over creating, you know, desire. Although I will say the first thing that I bought at Supreme was a black camera bag in yeah. 2013. Yeah. And like I like in case you didn't know, I'm a woman. <laughs> and and I was like, this is the perfect bag. I don't need another bag. And that yeah. was the only bag I carried. Like even sometimes I would carry it to like black tie parties yeah. and I would wear it with like a black silk gown. Like it was the perfect bag. And the yeah. only reason I don't carry it anymore is because in 2017 I left it on a plane. Fucking bummer. I know. Their bags are like for years were and this I mean they're still great. I don't know. I don't know if we're still in like the golden age of like supreme production quality. Like I don't do side by side comparisons. I don't. It's so hard to get in there now because of the, you know, there didn't used to be like lines and barricades outside. You used to just walk in. And yeah, I just walked shop. in and I just picked it up off the shelf and I took it to the yeah. cashier. And I would always how, like to that's go- how it went down. Yeah, yeah, and then you like paid them, and they put it in a bag, and probably said thanks, and you left, and you know, it was a yeah. nor- it was a normal shopping experience. They were the a little surly. Part. That was my. Yeah, um, that never bothered me. I mean, I know. I think some people like that. Like yeah. my so my friend David Shapiro wrote a novel oh, about Supreme, right. and he would always want to go to the store while he was writing this novel for like research, <laughs> and he would be like, "Oh God, they hate me. I love it." <laughs> I mean, that's a funny thing about it too, and they're they're obviously famous for that. There's a lot of factors. Like one thing is it's just like a clubhouse, and like other people aren't really welcome. Supreme, from the beginning, wasn't about selling stuff. It was about hanging out, and that culture never really changed. Another thing is they keep that place meticulous. Like they have the the folding of the t-shirts and the spacing of the clothes on the rack. Like all that shit is like so dialed in, and that's intentional. And I think part of it is the idea of like. Um, elevating like the product in a way, you know, like, like messaging that this isn't like a typical skate shop, you know, so just sort of like signaling that the product is, is something a little bit different. Um, and well, frankly, I think like the staff just like had, has free range to like treat people however the hell they want. Yeah. And if they think well, you're fun. cool, it's then also, they might treat you a little it's better. It's so funny, too, because people are always like, you know, I don't go into stores anymore because, like, customer service is bad. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, as it turns out, that's not true. If you have a free, like, 20 minutes to kill, here's a recommendation. Go on Yelp and read the reviews of the Supreme Store. Because it's, like, Everyone's all... Mad. They're all is one like stars. Moms? It's all tourists from out of town complaining about, like, getting yelled at by the bouncer or whatever. It's fucking hilarious. Well, one of the the um, the a funny thing about like Supreme is people have such a short memory, so there's constantly this like people are constantly just sort of discovering that Supreme is this phenomenon. But in the Rizzoli Supreme book, they they reprinted this Vogue article um, that's sort of famous from 1996, 95, 95. So Supreme had been open for one year. And um, Kate Betts, who is the longtime legendary fashion editor, longtime, um, well, Kate Betts was the assigning editor. It was written by a woman named Mary Tannen. But um, Vogue's longtime fashion news editor assigned this piece and uh, comparing shopping at Supreme to, to shopping at Chanel. And of, of course, the conclusion was that the two experiences are very similar in the sort of like cult like following for the brands and um, the. Uh, 
and, and there are a lot of things that are interesting about it. Actually, in reporting the story, I, I talked to Kate Betts about this piece and about her perspective. And and um, one thing that came up that's not in the story, but she just sort of identified this moment in the mid-90s as the beginning of the the global luxury consumer. Like it was it was the 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 start of of that, which is now like a, a huge thing today, but didn't necessarily exist as much at the time um, where you had, you know, this story sort of, I, I think it talks about like Russian women and the Chanel boutique, like going yeah. crazy. So I think Supreme also had this interesting timing. And of course, Supreme is a global phenomenon. I mean, as we know, like even the fake Supreme in China or whatever has like, is like a huge business. I mean, people want mm-hmm. this around the world. Um, similarly to, to Chanel and other, other big fashion brands. And that's not something that, um, always existed. I mean, it's impossible to know, but it's, it's certainly likely that more Supreme branded products are sold by like fake Supreme companies than by actual Supreme at this point. Like that's just how huge the phenomenon is globally. I don't know. I, you don't see too much fake Supreme here. I mean, I'm, maybe you do, but not like those big box logos that you see in Europe. No, like but if you, you go, go to Spain or Italy, everyone's wearing these like twisted uh, box logo tees that are um, obviously bogus. The sort of like final uh, beat of this Chanel Supreme Vogue story is there's a little box that like compares the, oh, yeah. the similarities and the differences between the two brands or between the two shopping experiences. And the differences are only Chanel has cold drinks served in crystal glasses and only Supreme has a skate team. It's the only difference. Yeah, folks. Chanel doesn't have a skate team, but it should. That would be pretty dope. They made skateboards. Yeah. Um, like recently. The other thing I want to... They should put the, you on the skate team, yeah, Rachel. the Chanel skate team. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk to you guys about we can be real for a minute is the part where uh harmony kareen is talking about the collapse of uh subculture yeah into mainstream culture no he says it's dope he's like then it was like the most liberated time and then his conclusion from that is then we could collaborate with white castle (laughs) (laughs) i know i wonder if he was specifically refer i mean we didn't like i didn't ask him about telfar but um, I, I just want to find it. I mean, it's cool because Harmony, like, he was really making kids as Supreme was opening. So he was really there through it all. And uh, it was pretty rad to talk to him for this story and, and get his perspective. And he's really smart and articulate about about what was happening and why it happened. And, um, you know, I think it's a thing that's sort of hard to describe. But he really got at this idea that uh, as Supreme was growing early on, it... uh it benefited from this this breakdown of of uh high culture and low culture and um pop culture and art and you know the street and what's on tv and everything else you know and i think that uh while supreme always remains sort of like whatever this like authentic sort of thing with some real edge it it was able to like do collaborations with Kermit the Frog and Lady Gaga, Lady Gaga. And uh and 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 it all was like remained soundly in their universe. And that's like this amazing thing that uh happened to all of us that we're all a part of and that like Supreme was able to like take 
in really weird places. Why was that happening? Like, why did he say that that was happening in 2003, 2004? What was happening? Well, the the answer is sort of the not very satisfying answer you get about a lot of cultural phenomenon. It, it's like the internet. It's like access to to everything. And, and not in the sense that it's like access for like people from the Midwest to like discover Supreme and learn about it. I think it was just you know we didn't there didn't used to be like just things like youtube where you could just kind of like lose yourself down a hole and like discover things and see how things overlap it you know it it used to be it used to require more sort of like legwork and things existed in like were way more like compartmentalized and and you had to look you had to actually like really look for yeah stuff. and you had to look for it and then you know so i don't really I don't really know. I think that's the answer. It's not. I always find that to be unsatisfying when people are like, well, it, the Internet changed everything because you're just like, well, yes, but also the Internet's just like a tool. Like there must have been something else. So, I, you know, I don't know, like what type of like Y2K paranoia like made people uh, insane and and like led them like to unexpected places. Maybe yeah. I just wonder if part of it was that like the kids who were raised on sellout culture like grew up and realized that it was like no longer that exciting to like position themselves always in like opposition to you know the man or whatever yeah um and and as harmony says what was cool was making things and seeing things in a different way yeah and at that point doing a collaboration with budweiser was like it's actually kind of like a radical move that's for right like a downtown cool skate brand yeah fuck these gen xers and their uh their f- fight against selling out that's boring well people can't really afford to not sell out anymore i think that's part <laughs> that's of it too it's like a d- yeah, downtown new york became the new york most expensive <laughs> yeah. place to live like in the country so it's aside from san francisco so you had to sell out if you wanted to stay downtown and stay cool the other thing too though is that oh I yeah think, like, this harmony quote sorry but can i read the harmony quote is that yeah. lame to read some no, go for read it. it read it in no in the early mid 90s there was always a sense of sellout culture then all of a sudden it was obliterated and then culture was up for grabs it was like a bomb drop there were no more rules it was just about making things and seeing things in a different way which is what sam just said um and then that's when it became the most free which is what rachel just said and you collaborate with white castle and of course like supreme um you know, I I point out that they would collaborate with Daniel Johnston, who was like at the time a not very well known outsider artist, as well as you know Budweiser, the number one beer sponsor of the pod. Yeah, I think also though around that time, and I don't know if this is like because of the internet or related to the internet it has nothing to do with the internet, but it also seemed like at that point, like everyone every person suddenly like developed taste like no one was wearing yeah. like like that's when i was i guess like maybe a freshman in high school or maybe and i was in eighth grade but like no one had just like the normal jeans like everyone had like skinny jeans or like bell bottom jeans, like, <laughs> and this was also around the time that urban outfitters yeah. was like blowing up yeah the emporium and of like exactly urban outfitters fashion, was like a way of uh like 
not commodifying, but like just centralizing subculture. Yeah, big time. You know, like I remember, you know, that this was also the point where I got really into T-shirts and like my brother or my friends and I would go to thrift stores. And the idea was like to find a cool T-shirt. Ideally, if you didn't want to know like what it meant yeah like you didn't, <laughs> yeah, i yeah, had yeah, this yeah. one that said jamboree in the hills like 1996 so my math teacher was like i went to that and i was like <laughs> oh, i don't want to know um but damn i bet the jamboree in the hills was, was tight. tight yeah it was covered in muddy handprints <laughs> it was a really sick tea um but uh Urban Outfitters was selling like these t-shirts that like I remember said like trust me I'm a doctor. Yeah. Which is like the the the, the less you know those. the more like titillating it is. Yeah, and, and irony was big. Yeah. And and I think I mean I don't even remember at that I don't I doubt that like Urban Outfitters was selling like pretend supreme but they were certainly making a kind of similar product but more mass produced in terms of these like kind of Levi's-esque, well, they did sell Levi's, but then also these kind of, like, Carhartt-esque chinos and, like, work pants and that sort of thing. Yeah, you could, like, dress, it was, like, the Beastie Boys uniform. It was, like, a little bit of rave and a little bit of, like, punk or grunge and, like, hip-hop, a little bit of that, like, old man style, like, which Kurt Cobain sort of did that was, like, you know, cardigans and... Mm -hmm. um, Yeah, that stuff has always been, like, soundly in the Supreme wheelhouse you know, work jackets and um, things that look like uniforms, you know, uh, and like the sort of Ben Davis thing, which which happened sort of simultaneously and a little before Supreme. Um, X-Large, X-Girl. Chloe worked at X-Girl, right? You know, she, she didn't work there, but she like modeled in there oh, for a show. I thought she like, wait, didn't she work at a store on Lafayette? Liquid Sky. Oh, right. That was a rave. Liquid Sky, oh, one of the great a rave New York apparel stores. stores. Yeah. I, New York Mag has an oral history of Liquid Sky. Yeah. Um, I miss the old New York. Just kidding. <laughs> what did James say about collaborations? He said something about Chanel that I thought was cool. Oh, because um, I think like Supreme. He says if we could have collaborated with Vuitton twenty years ago, we would have. Yeah. I mean, his. It seems to me his sense of the collaboration thing is just like they'll do whatever they think is cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a recurring uh, thing you get from Supreme, which is like we just do what we think is cool. And um, which I believe, you know, I, I like this is this these like Supreme collections and these products aren't the result of like uh, market testing and, and like, research uh, and like focus groups and shit like that. More into this yeah, area. like I. I do think that they they have awareness of what's what sells and what doesn't, and they don't want inventory. They want everything to sell out. It, that's just smart. But uh, you know, I really think that the people that and a lot of people have told me, and pe- people that have worked have worked there in the past, like Luke Meyer from Jill Sander and Angelo from Awake and uh, Brendan Babenzi, and it's like one of the things is that Supreme has always had like an incredibly talented and smart team and my understanding and without knowing the full extent of it but supreme still has a very small team i i think my point was just that they just make shit that they think is cool and they historically have had really cool people work there and uh and that's basically what you get and and the same with the collaborations you know like i don't i don't think these are like based on them being like well oh my god imagine how much money we would make if we did this 
um, cla- this weird collaboration, you know. But what's yeah. so funny about that though is that like a lot of a lot of fashion brands are try- like really struggle to do that yeah. when they're like doing collaborations. They're like, oh, like, and they're not trying to do something that's going to make money. They're trying to do something that's cool, and yeah. they like can't. They're like, ah, how do we do it? Like, what if people, what's cool? I don't know. What if we... Well, Supreme certainly benefits from just the fact that they were able to establish themselves as cool and authentic and authoritative very early on, and they never let it slip, which is, it's the most, I mean, like, anyone you talk to who has any relationship to Supreme or knows James or has worked there or has worked with them, and I talk to a lot of these people are like this is the most micromanaged brand on the planet and it shows 25 years later like yeah you might like not everyone loves supreme for sure not everyone loves the sort of phenomenon of it and the um the people who wear it but like they haven't really missed a beat in terms of that cool and that authenticity and now they have like with the skate team and the videos Bill Strobeck is making, like I think they've they've just like gone deeper into into skate and um, with the fashion thing and um, you know that CFDA award, which I, I don't really think is all that important in terms of like Supreme's history, but is a meaningful thing. And, and James did show up to accept it, like um, unlike the uh, control. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, helmet didn't didn't even sh- helmet one year was. Man, Helmet Lang is so awesome. We need to do a Helmet Lang episode. But one year he was nominated for Women's Wear, Men's Wear, and Accessories Designer of the Year, and he did not show up. He was like, I'm working. He was in the studio, yeah. Anna was pissed. If you trace the history of Supreme collaborations, it's a pretty remarkable. I mean, they it's a timeline of like not every major moment, but a lot of major moments in recent menswear history. I mean, they had like a Tom Brown collaboration in 2007. Yeah. I mean, they've been doing it for so long, which is why I think it was a little funny that people were kind of freaking out about the uh, freaking out in like a bad way about the Vuitton collab that was just sort of it was just sort of like another instance in like a long line of Supreme striking right when the iron's like the hottest yeah the Supreme collab or the Vuitton collaboration is like the one like major anomalous moment in Supreme's history like the fact that it was like this entire collection that it sold not in they didn't sell it in Supreme stores at all right wasn't it only sold yeah, in pop-ups right. and like Vuitton stores and stuff? Yes. Um, well, they tried to do like independent Supreme Vuitton pop-ups, which I think happened in some cities, but what not happened? New they York. got like closed down, or they were going to do it on Bond Street in New York, and yeah. I think the city said no. I think it's sort of too bad, and like this story doesn't really make make much of that collaboration in particular because I, I don't really think it's all that significant. It's funny that. Um, it becomes a thing that people like talk about or refer to or think is this like crucial moment in Supreme history. But I just don't think the Vuitton collaboration is that. I think it was, it's, it's just like this isolated and anomalous moment, um, that, you know, I don't think it'll happen again. And it's not really care. It's not like really a characteristic, like Supreme thing to do. And maybe that relates to their, you know, Carlisle Group investment and the way the brand is growing and expanding and whatever the future may hold. Like, it's not something Supreme talks about and you can't, you know, they're pretty airtight. I think it's more of a, it was more of a moment that um, men's high fashion became a pop cultural, a part of like pop culture. And I think, honestly, that story 
lies with LVMH and Bernard Arnault more than yeah. it does with Supreme and James Jebbia. Like I think that's the bigger that's where the bigger move was made. That was the more radical move. But like you said, James mentions in the piece that if they could have done the Vuitton collab twenty years earlier, they would have. Yeah, yeah. And they they kind of did. They did those bootleg. They did the bootleg Vuitton stuff. Yeah, that's right. Which was so tight. <laughs> bring bring back the bootlegs. So we're gonna run the full James Jebbia interview as well as a separate piece. So that's coming. Come back next week and then we'll do a whole other podcast about that just kidding this is the last time we'll ever talk about supreme this is the last time i'm ever going to mention supreme in it, public it's funny that the supreme piece abuts the uh cause piece in yeah. the august issue yeah we got a big cause and jebbia are uh, good homies big honking cause profile as well um oh, do you guys want to do vibes today no yes My vibe is going to be something from the story. Oh, no. Maybe it's Odell Beckham Jr.'s earring on the cover of the August issue, which is a big diamond with a dangling gold chain and then a diamond-studded cross. Someone listened to the jewelry episode Um, of Corporate In honor of the jewelry episode. Um, I'm not going to get that earring personally, but, you know, I would... Just imagine me, Boris Johnson, with a dangling cross diamond earring and when you go to sleep at night. Rachel, do you have a vibe? No. Come on. Just one of the 13 that we're going to do now. Which brand do you prefer, Supreme or Chanel? Chanel. Why? Because it's more expensive. <laughs> That's the <laughs> correct answer. Uh, Sam, you have a vibe? Um, we got to end on something strong here. My vibe is... Uh... <laughs> This big fit of the day that GQ posted uh, two days ago of the lead singer and guitarist in Twin Peaks in a really why is everyone crazy talking about this outfit? Yeah, that's a great outfit. Uh, it's a super like Chicago. It's like something that like everyone in Chicago wore to like go to Lollapalooza. Let me see. Show me your you phone know, screen. Seven years ago. Did you Shh. see the caption, Noah? What is? Oh, and the yeah. caption and is, is just is me screaming on That's what all the captions should be. What is this band, uh, Twin Peaks? Does everyone know this band already? Good question. I saw them last night. Uh, How were they? They well, I really I, I saw them play two and a half shred? two and a half songs. So I sort of missed most it's of not it. Not very many songs. But um, they shredded. They're extremely fucking good. Really? It's all about the live experience with them. They're like the Grateful Dead in that way. Wow, that's but, a wild uh, comparison. To but make. I mean, they just like rip on every song. Did their first album just come out? No, they're. They've probably album, been around fourth album. forever. God damn, I don't know. They've anything. been a, they've been a band since they were all like sixteen, and now they're like twenty four. Um, I don't. But know. they're just some good old Chicago guitar rock, and I and I like that. I think guitars are going to make a big comeback. Clay Frankel year. is the That's dude's name. That's my vibe. Guitars. His name is Clay Frankel. Clay Frankel. Great name. He Shout out Clay Frankel. Shout out Odell Beckham Jr. Shout out James Jebbia. Shout out Cause. This is episode sixty five of Corporate Lunch. What are we going to do next week, episode 66? Are we taking a summer vacation? Maybe we'll take a month off. Sounds good. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> we do this every week because we love you, because we care. Um, DM Sam Hine to tell him um, your favorite your favorite Supreme piece you've ever bought or your least favorite Supreme piece you've ever seen. See you next week. <laughs>